Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back inside. (laughs) Although last week was awesome. Um, Had a couple of people say, well, the sun was a little bit hot. It does get hot. The sun does. Um, We were talking about that and we were thinking, man, can we put up some tents and maybe get the sun off everybody? And then somebody else said, well, why don't we put some walls up too and get some air conditioning? Oh, yeah, we've got one of those right behind us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to say thank you to everybody that worked so hard for Praise in the parking lot. It was a blast. Uh, worked out great. Saw a lot of new faces. And uh, so thank you guys for doing that. Uh, let's get our Bibles out and go to Ecclesiastes. I'll give you about 30 minutes to find Ecclesiastes. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You got it? Old book out of the Old Testament. But with a powerful message, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 9 and following. Today's the last day I'm talking about better back together. Um, Why am I talking about it so much? Well, because we are better back together. We need each other. I need you. You need me. We can't do this thing alone. We live in a world that tells the lie that life is better in isolation and that all you need is technology and all of that stuff and it's going to somehow meet all your needs. You were not created for that. And we certainly can't be the church in that way. We need each other. And we've talked about, I need you to speak truth into my life sometimes. Sometimes I've got blind spots I need you to confront me with. Sometimes I'm stuck. I don't have the answer. I need your insights. Sometimes I'm afraid and I need your courage. And together we have influence. You influence people I can't influence. I influence people you can't influence. But if you have to sum it all up, it works like this. Together we're stronger. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through following. So let's look at it. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. And that idea is they make a better paycheck. Uh, The productivity is way better. uh, Exponentially better. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion... But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. The essence of that is we're stronger together. And for a variety of reasons. First of all, together we stay productive. We're more productive together. Two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. And that idea is they're more productive. They, they, they make a better wage. They make a better product. They, they do it more quickly. That's the idea. And if you've noticed, guys in construction and labor, they almost always have a helper or an assistant. You, you see a plumber at work. He's got an assistant. An electrician's got an assistant. Um, a, a, a carpenter's got an assistant because we know that two are always better and I can do it better, I can do it faster, I can do it safer. Um, I've been doing a lot of projects around the house. Maybe, maybe you're like me. We've got this house that's like 20 years old now and we raised a whole herd of humanity in that house. And somebody said, what's it like having three boys? I'm like, I don't know. I never just, I mean, four boys. I said, I don't know. I've never just had four. I don't even know how many I have. Three, four, five, ten. I don't know, 20. 
And, and we have all these sons. I see Roy Boy back there. He's one of my sons. Grew up at my house. And man, let me tell you something. You get a tribe of boys at a house, they're going to tear the thing up. So it was kind of timed up, great, and all that. Amy's been watching Fixer Upper. And let me just say, Chip and Joanna Gaines have ruined my life. <laughs> I live a shiplap nightmare is what I live. And so I started redoing the upstairs and it took me three years. I've been working on it. Talk about a shiplap nightmare. It's been a nightmare for Amy too. Three years it took me. Some, a couple of professionals could do it in probably a week and a half. Took me three years. Why did it take so long? Well, for one thing, I didn't have the experience, right? And so it's not putting it in the first time that's hard. It's tear, tearing it out the third time. That's what takes time. But more than that, it's, it's, I'm, I'm getting old. I don't move very fast. But mostly it's because I like to work by myself. It's kind of therapeutic for me. I'll put the headphones on, listen to a, a book on Audible, and so I can work and listen to a book and do all that. And it takes forever when you do it by yourself. There's a reason you need somebody else. There's always somebody to hold the other end of the line or to hold the other end of the board. Or if you drop something off a ladder, there's somebody that can pick it up and hand it to you. You forget something out in the truck, they'll run out and get it. Or, or, or most importantly, if it's too heavy for you to lift, there's somebody else to help you lift it. Because there's a lot of times I'll reach a point, I can't lift that, and I'll have to call one of the boys, hey, I need you to come over and help me lift this. And they're like, okay, I'm coming. And so it just becomes, and that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. Together we can do more than we can do alone. Uh, you've probably seen this little video clip. Take a look at it. Here's how the Amish move a barn. Okay, watch this. If you've already seen it, I thought this was so cool. You're an Amish. You don't have tractors. You don't have equipment. How are you going to move that barn? We just get a whole bunch of Amish. <laughs> you bag about a hundred, about two, three hundred Amish in a in a barn. You can move a barn. Is that crazy? You see that guy walking backward at North Monroe on staff? That's me. I'm always the guy who's not lifting the barn, but I'm making sure they're lifting it properly, right? That's the job you want. Is that crazy, though? I'm thinking if we could all get those little straw hats, we could, man, there's no telling what we could do, right? I just think the Amish are so cool. And when I saw that video, I thought, that's a beautiful metaphor for the church. That's who we are. I mean, we can do more together than we could ever do alone. And, and it's a great image for us. Together we lift what I can't carry alone. There's this beautiful word that you see all over the New Testament. It's usually translated endurance. And it's something that God calls us to. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But, be, but you be sober in all things. Now look at this. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 1 Corinthians 13 said, love endures all things. 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are persecuted, we endure. And that word in, in the Greek is hupomeno. And it's from a compound word, two words. Hupom means under and meno means to remain or abide. It means literally to pitch your tent. When Jesus was talking to people, He said, if you're truly disciples of mine, if you abide in my word, that word abide is minnow. 
And so the idea of it is, is that I abide under, and the concept is that I'm able to stay under the load. And that's a very important theological concept for believers. And I've got to tell you that a lot of Christians today don't really embrace that idea. They, they want a God who everything's going to go my way and it's going to go well. And when things don't go my way, God has somehow deeply disappointed me. I'm reading a fantastic book right now on the Mayflower and talking about the attitude of the pilgrims in that horrifically difficult experience of coming into the new world in the middle of one of the worst winters of all time and and how they dealt with it. And, And the writer says that they had this idea that whenever anything good happened to them, that it was God that did it. And whenever anything bad happened to them, they perceived that as God giving them a test or a trial and they wanted to be sure that they passed the test. That's the idea of endurance. But it's not always uh, translated endure. Sometimes it's translated persevere. Here's a word study, a quick word study to give you a shot at the different ways this word is used in the New Testament. You can see how it's used not only as endure, but perseveres, persevering, remain. And you see how it's translated. In, in James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres, in the same word, hupomeno, under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So in other words, God wants us to be able to withstand the load. And sometimes he allows hard things into our life to create endurance so that we can persevere because he wants to load us up. And he's calling us to carry harder things. But here's what we need to understand. I can carry more and I can carry it longer when you help me carry it. And so two have a better return on their labor, way better. The second thing I see here is that together we stay balanced. He said, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. And there are several ways to look at this. Sometimes I get down and I need you to pick me up. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the power of community in terms of encouragement. Sometimes I'm fearful and I need you to encourage me. Uh, sometimes I fail and, and I blow it. And I need you to remind me that failure is never final in Christ. Um, and that's a powerful thing the church needs to get their head around because so many times when somebody f- fails, we think instead of picking them up, we want to pile on. You know, somebody said we're the only arm in the world that shoots our own wounded. And, and rather than when a person falls, somebody's there to lift him up, we sort of step on him and hold him down. Think what would happen if the image to the world was of a community of faith that genuinely cared about those who were in trouble and genuinely helped them by lifting them up. And so that's what he's talking about there, that you, you need somebody to do that. But you know, there's another side to this. Take the focus off of the picking up part and ask yourself, why are you falling? Uh, why do we fall? Why does a person fall? Well, a person falls because he loses his balance, right? You say, I, I fell because I tripped. Well, you tripped, but in the process of tripping, what happened? You lost your balance. You fell. Uh, I, I, I slipped. Well, yeah, you slipped and lost your balance. And so it all comes back to balance. And, and so I realized this, that it's not only our calling to lift those up who fall, but it's our calling to help them stay in balance so that they don't fall in the first place. 
I mean, let that literal word picture now uh, help you to understand the spiritual side of it. When I lose my balance, I fall into sin, right? When I lose my balance, I fall into depression. When I lose my balance, I fall into unbelief. And here's one. When I lose my balance, I fall into extremism. And I think it means all of that, but balance is at the root of it. We fall when we lose our balance. And I need someone to pick me up, but I also need someone to help me with maintain my balance. Man, I look at the world right now, and it's a world that's out of balance. And even those within the church are out of balance. I mean, we've fallen for extremes. It's easy to fall into extremes. It's so easy, and I know you get mad, and you look at what's going on, and you don't like it, and you don't like what you see, but when Christians lose their balance, they fall for extreme, and then they become hypercritical and judgmental. I'll never forget when I was in college, I was walking down the dorm hallway, and I had a Coke in my hand, and these couple of young Pharisees came up to me, and they said, they said, man, what are you doing with that sugar? And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you shouldn't be eating sugar. You're the temple of God. You're hurting the temple. I'm like, dude, everything hurts the temple. The sun hurts the temple. I go outside and get cancer. I mean, getting old hurts the temple. I look at this temple, man. I don't have to do anything. Age itself, just spending another day on this planet is dragging down the temple. I mean, you can live your life. I, I, I get it, you nutritionists, I get it. But you can live your life making making physical things spiritual things. And you can miss out on a whole lot. I mean, there's nothing sinful or shameful about treating yourself to some sugar. Just don't overdo it. Look at Proverbs 25, 16. Have you found, honey, eat only what you need that you may not have it in excess and vomit it. I mean, you know, find a little sugar, eat a little sugar. Just don't eat sugar all the time, right? But when Christians lose their balance, they fall into extremes, they become hypercritical and judgmental. And listen, if you've ever been a pastor or lived in a pastor's house, you get this. And you just never know what's going to come at you next. You never know what, who's mad. You know, one of the hardest parts about being a pastor is when you walk in a room, you don't know who's mad at you. You know, <laughs> So you don't even want to walk in the room. It's like, I don't know who's mad today. You know, wonder what they're mad about. I was reading this book. This guy was a, a Christian uh, radio guy, and, and this actually happened to him. So one day he was given the local forecast. He said, it'll be warmer than it should be for, the, for this time of year. Normally the high is 72, but today a high of 82. The phone rang. Caller, you know, I was really disappointed to hear your forecast. It's not going to be, quote, warmer than it should be because God ordains the weather. And it's going to be exactly what he wants it to be today. Very disappointing. <laughs> I was so refreshed to read that. I'm like, that guy gets it. I've, I've been where he is. People are people. And we swing to extremes and we have to help each other stay balanced. Because a balanced character is an important thing. I was reading Romans 9 and it was talking about that God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And you know, there are some who would say, well, that means that God is sovereign. He can pick one and reject the other. And I get that. I'm all about that. God is sovereign. He chooses whoever he wants. But he's not capricious. <clears throat> he's sovereign, but he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. 
And He knows us even before we're born. You know, I've said this before. You know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He knew Jacob. He knew Esau before they were born. And when you back up and look at the description of the two men, Jacob and Esau, in Genesis 25, you see that Jacob was the better choice. Why was he the better choice? Well, because he had a balanced character. Look at it. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a, here's the word, peaceful man living in the tents. Esau was a bit of a wild man. And, and we see it in his impetuous nature. When he got hungry, he just gave up the birthright. I'm hungry. I'm dying here. Give me some of that stew. Well, sell me the birthright. Okay, you got it for a bowl of stew. Stew. When he got lustful, uh, he went out and got some foreign wives and made the whole family miserable. Uh, when he was deceived by his brother, he flew off the handle and swore he was going to kill his brother. And uh, 15 years later, when they meet back up, he seems to have completely forgotten that vow. He just Esau wasn't balanced. He was impetuous and combustible and hyperbolic and incendiary. But the Bible says Jacob was a peaceful man. And that word in the Hebrew is tame. It's T-A-M. And the root of it means to be complete or finished. Here's what the word study of it looks like of how they treated it in the Old Testament. The Net Bible calls it even-tempered. That was the idea. So Genesis 25, 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open fields. But Jacob was an even-tempered man living in the tents. You got that? If you're looking for a New Testament equivalent to that idea of tame, it would be the word prowess. And prowess was that word that used to be translated meek. Jesus used it in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the, the, the gentle that word meek, they translate it gentle now because meek had come to me weak. He said, blessed are the gentle prouse, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he said this of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's that word again, prouse and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Now don't miss this. Gentle and meekness doesn't mean weakness, okay? He's not talking about a Mr. Rogers kind of weakness. That word uh, had at its origin the idea of taming a wild stallion. And so the idea is that you have this wild stallion that's been brought under control. So a, a proud person was a person whose wild heart has been brought under the Holy Spirit's control. And if you think about it, that's, that's exactly what Jesus modeled. I mean, think of the names for Jesus. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Powerful, dangerous, a lion. But at the same time, he was the Lamb of God. And you feel that balance in his character that God looks for in his own people. And here's the problem. It's hard to stay balanced on your own because we get fired up. I've told you all this story before. Years ago, I got this ticket going through Clinton, Arkansas. And it really wasn't my fault. Now, I know you don't believe that, but I'm pretty honest about my crimes in driving. And most of the time, I'd say 100% of the time, 99% of the time, my fault. But in this particular case, we're coming out of family camp. We pull into a car wash there in Clinton to wash the cars. There's three cars in our party. Amy's driving one, I'm driving one, and my son John Williams driving one. And so we wash the cars. We start to pull out on this two lane with a center turn lane. And I pull out first, and I go about a half a mile. They're waiting to try to get in when suddenly the traffic stops. As far as you can see before me, as far as you can see behind me, there's been a bad wreck on the highway. They're still stuck in the parking lot. 
And I mean, it's a parking lot on the road. There's no way for them to join. We're worried about how are we going to stay together, driving home, all this stuff. Then these two guys in front of me do a U-turn. I mean, people are out of their cars talking, standing around. The two guys in front of me do a U-turn. So rather than pull up, I got on the, the walkie-talkie and I said, Amy, y'all come up here, just drive in the, in the turn lane and drive up here and pull in in front of me. Well, as they were driving in the turn lane, they passed a highway patrolman. And let me tell you something. He was very sensitive about being passed. Very sensitive. And by the time he finally caught up to us, he was some kind of mad. And he was yelling at me, and I'm like, officer, we didn't mean to do anything wrong. We are just trying to keep our party together. Well, you passed me, and that's where you made your mistake. Then he gets into Amy's face, and he's yelling at her, and she's crying. The guy's totally out of control. And, and I'm getting mad. I'm like, look, look, dude, I spent my life trying to teach my kids to respect law enforcement. I respect law enforcement. You got my kids crying. You got my wife crying. I mean, what's going on? If you need to give me a ticket, just give me a ticket. That's how I am. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not where I ought to be, but that's where I am. And so he gives me two tickets, $270 a piece, $540 stop. But I'm, 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 I say I'm not mad about the money. I'm mostly mad about the moment, but I'm probably mad about the money too. So on the way home, I call up my buddy Bob, who's a lawyer, and I say, Bob, we need to come to Clinton, Arkansas. We're going to fight this thing. This guy's out of control. He's crazy. He doesn't need to have a badge and a gun. He's going to hurt somebody and blah, 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 blah. And I'm all raging. And my friend Bob, who's sitting in the room right now, says, why don't you just tap the brakes? I'm like, where is Johnny Cochran when I need him, you know? <laughs> He's like, why don't you wait a couple of weeks and you decide whether you want to go back up to Clinton, Arkansas and fight all this. And he was right. In a couple of weeks, I'd calm down and, you know, I just paid the bill and, you know, got, got away. But, you know, he needed to talk me off my crazy ledge because I was out of balance. And I need people. I need you. You need me. We need to talk each other to maintain balance lest we fall. Yeah, let's pick them up when they fall. But what about let's help them not to fall? Together we stay balanced. Together we stay warm. Look at verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I read this and thought, you know, that's more than physical warmth. Yeah, two bodies in a two-man tent are going to stay warm. I, man, I've, I've, I've been on the top of mountains before uh, with youth groups, and, and we were in two-man tents, and I was glad I wasn't in a one-man tent because you need that warmth. But spiritually speaking, it's the same way. I see people go, I don't need church to follow Jesus. I'll just follow Jesus on my own. And I'm like, dude, you pull a log out of a fire, and what happens to that log? It goes out. And when you try to walk in isolation, I can promise you your fire will go out. We need each other to stay warm. And then finally, we need each other to stay secure. Look at verse 12. And if one can overpower him as alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We know this to be true, but how does it apply spiritually? I mean, how many times are we actually getting into a fist fight? We're not He's not talking about fist fights. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Who's our enemy? Well, Satan. How does he attack? Well, he always attacks us from the, the, the point where we least expect it. He's always fighting us on our flanks. So what's the benefit of two? The other day I got passed by a truck, and on the back windshield it said, I got your six. A guy, guy's a military guy. You know what the six is? It's the position directly behind you. In other words, I got your back. 
There used to be a phrase back in the old days when we'd <clears throat> get into trouble too much and, and the idea was going back to back. If you kind of got into a situation where there was more people than there was you, you put your back up next to the other guy so that he's got your back, you got his back, and you're going back to back. Well, the same is true spiritually. We need somebody that's got our back because the enemy's going to always attack us from behind. Very rarely does he come at you from the front. And, and what he's saying there is not only do you have more power, but you have the ability to protect one another's flank. So no matter what happens in this life, you can take it on because you're taking it on together. We're better together. We're really stronger together. And the Christian faith was never meant to be lived alone. I need you. You need me. You help me endure. When I can't endure, you help me lift stuff that's too heavy for me. You pick me up when I fall. You help me stay balanced. You keep me warm. You got my back. That's why we have to belong. And let me say, you've got to belong to Jesus first because that's where the common bond is. But then you've got to belong to a family and that's called church. And God gave us church because we need each other. He never created... You know, in the... In the Hindu faith, in the Buddhist faith, it's all about your solitary walk. You go out and do it on your own. Christianity was never that way. It was always about community. The church was called the congregation. We need each other. But you know, you need to belong to a family. If you don't, North Monroe's a great one. Come belong to us. But also within the body of North Monroe, you need to belong to small groups because that's where the real intimacy occurs. Look, you can come in here and you can sit soak and sour every week and we don't know what's happening in your life. And when you have a crisis, we won't know about it. But if you're in a small group, that small group, you know, somebody asked me, what's the power of North Monroe? I said life groups. Because our life groups function in such a way that they do the very things we're talking about. And so you need to be a part of a small group so that you belong, so that you work in community. And in community, stronger than you would ever be by yourself. So can I ask you something? Who's got your back? Who is there in your life that will pick you up when you fall? Who can speak truth and keep you balanced? Who keeps you warm? Would you pray with me right now? Father, we are grateful for your truth, for this beautiful community of faith that you've given us. The world has a way of trying to tear us apart. That's really been happening through the pandemic, through politics, through race in every way trying to rip this beautiful body apart. And yet your Holy Spirit keeps saying, not today, not today. Because I've made my people to belong. Father, we belong to you and we belong to each other. And I pray, Father, for those who are here, they don't feel like they belong anywhere and they don't feel like they belong to anybody and it's just they've been doing it on their own. God, today they would know that they know Jesus. We thank you that you did everything necessary to know you. That you fully satisfied your justice on the cross. And when we trust you and we believe in you and we commit our lives to you as Lord, we belong to you. Father, I, I pray for those who thought they could belong to you and not belong to the church. 
help them to see that they need each other. And we thank you for this community that makes us better together. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.